Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Welcome to a very special episode of The Five By. As the holiday season approaches, it's easy to get caught up in the stress of planning, cooking, shopping, traveling, and everything else associated with the final two months of the year. This is a friendly reminder to play games. Use games to connect with friends and family you haven't seen all year. Endure that get-together where your uncle drones on about politics. Introduce modern board games to the next generation of gamers. Or take some time for yourself, relax, and play a solo game. I've chosen five fantastic games from our archives that are highly enjoyable and recommended for the holidays and beyond. First, Ruth tells us about Tiny Towns, a resource management city builder. Next, guest host Nicole reviews the outstanding and crowd-pleasing party game, Just One. Sarah talks about one of my contenders for 2019 Game of the Year, Wingspan. Mason looks back at Indigo, a tile-laying game similar to Suro from Rainer Knizia. And Meeple Lady reviews the strategic and cute Takenoko. Enjoy the holiday season, friends, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Five By. At the beginning of 2019, I set myself a goal to refine my collection. It's an informal goal with no set numbers or budget, but the basic idea is to reduce my overall collection only by quality games and focus more on upgrading the games I own that I love. As a result, we're now in June and I've purchased just four titles, a dramatic drop from previous years. One of those four games is Peter McPherson's Tiny Towns, published in 2019 by AEG, and this game absolutely deserves its place on my newly improved shelves. Many people find the puzzle found in Tiny Towns reminiscent of the popular app game Triple Town, and I can see why. Both games involve placing a single item into a free space on your board each turn, in the hopes of creating the right pattern to transform into something else and free up more space. In tiny towns, those resources turn into a building that occupies just one of the spaces previously taken up by the pattern, leaving the rest of those spaces free to build something new and hopefully continue building your town. Unlike the app, which is a single player trying to last as long as possible, the tabletop game is a competitive game, with different buildings scoring points in different ways, and each player trying to create the most prosperous town once everyone runs out of space. Some of their buildings will score based on the things adjacent to them, others based on the town's features overall, and others don't actually score, but will have made it easier for the player during the game. Although the game comes with wooden pieces for six different buildings, the variety of buildings in your game isn't limited to this number. Apart from the cottages, which are always used, the other building pieces each have four associated cards showing different options, only one of which will be used in each game. So depending on the set of cards chosen, a game can progress and score very differently from the last one. Each player also has a unique monument card that only they can build, and these monuments can have some pretty powerful abilities or the opportunity to score a lot of points. And the variety doesn't stop there. Another aspect of the game that has options is the very method in which resources are even chosen. There are five resource types in the game, and the pattern required for each building is very specific, though players can rotate or mirror it. In the standard game, players will pass around a wooden hammer token to designate the master builder. The master builder announces a resource type to start the turn, then everyone simultaneously will take that resource and place it on their board before building anything they can and want to build. This leads to some interesting decisions as players weigh up choosing which resource they need to select versus which they might hope someone else will select for them. Plus, as the game winds down and space starts to be limited, players usually start assessing what they might be better off denying others, provided doing so doesn't also hinder their own play. 
as players are out and score their game once their board is full. It pays to be aware of what others seem to be building, in the hopes of eliminating someone before they earn a ton of points and being left as the last person standing and therefore making all the decisions. But if you don't want the agony of assessing everyone else's board in order to pick a resource, you can leave the resources up to fate. The game comes with a deck of cards, which are also used in its solo mode. Town Hall mode has the players flipping cards to determine resources for most of their turns, with every third turn being up to each individual player to determine what they will take. This mode moves faster and focuses more on working out how to better use the same input as your opponents. I enjoy both ways to play Tiny Towns, and it's a testimony to the strength of the design that neither mode feels like an afterthought or as the lesser option. Playing up to six players, Tiny Towns offers a thinky, lovely little puzzle that can let a slightly larger group still play together instead of having to break up. It's quick to teach but greatly rewards repeated play, as placing a resource in the wrong place can hurt a lot. And more plays lets players improve their ability to get as much as possible out of the very limited space. It's also a really lovely game to look at. The wooden buildings have distinct colors and shapes, the resources are slightly larger cubes than the norm, and the cards feature great art from Gong Studios. My only complaint, actually, is that the theme is about woodland critters building towns and forest clearings, but the animal residents of the town are barely noticeable in the art, and I wish they'd be made more apparent, as when you look for and find them, they're pretty adorable. So if you like puzzles, want to outwit your friends by using the same resources better than they can, and want to support a first-time designer, then check out Tiny Towns. It's quick, playing in 45 minutes, it can accommodate different group sizes and playstyle preferences, and even when played in town hall mode doesn't feel super solitarish, as everyone commiserates with less than ideal resource options while groaning as that one player seems to find a way to make it work. It's a great game, and one I'm happy to make room for in my shelves. This has been Ruth for the 5 by If you want to talk about your favorite building sets or play modes, feel free to find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. What if I told you there was a cooperative party board game and that it was actually really, really good? Dear listener, let me introduce you to just one. I know there's some great co-op party or large group games out there, but just one piques a different interest. A game where you're trying to give unique one-word clues to help a person guess what their prompt word is could fall really flat. But in practice, it's really a light and silly hybrid type of party game. Just One was released in 2018 by Repost Productions, designed by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sautur. Before I'd had a chance to try it, I'd actually already purchased a copy based on strength of word of mouth and a friend telling me about the gameplay. I'd seen some images on social media of people playing and really had no idea what I was looking at, but was nonetheless intrigued. And as soon as I got it out of the box and played, I knew I'd made the right decision. Just one can be played with as few as three players up to a maximum of seven. I don't really recommend any less than four. A game takes approximately 20 minutes to play. The group starts with 13 prompt cards, each listing five words. An active player is chosen, and they prompt the card facing out, randomly selecting a number from one to five. The rest of the table will then secretly write a one-word clue on their little whiteboard easel relating to that prompt. Once they're done, the active player closes their eyes, and the rest of the players will compare their clues. Any duplicate clues are turned face down because there can be just one. 
The rest are turned to the active player, who'll then open their eyes and try to guess the prompt based on those clues. If they guess correctly, that card becomes a point. If not, the card is discarded along with another from the deck of 13, and play proceeds clockwise to the next guesser. Depending on how well the players do over the rounds, you may end up playing through all 13 cards, or maybe you'll end up bombing out and getting through only six or so rounds. When all is said and done, you'll tally up the number of successfully guessed cards and get yourself a score from the rulebook. Perhaps on the lower end, where you'll have encouraging scores like, that's a good start, try again, or you're in the average, can you do better? Or maybe you're up at the top with, your friends must be impressed, or perfect score. Honestly, once you've played just one, you're only ever going to compare how you've done to previous plays of the game. It's all for the fun of it, not really your score. More than any of the scoring or rules, what strikes me as the best part of just one is the mental gymnastics that players go through every round. With any given prompt, there may be some obvious clues to give. But wait, what if someone else decides to give that clue? So now I have to think of something different. So, for example, the prompt sword immediately conjures up blade. So I want to think of something a little different, like duel, or maybe hilt. Meanwhile, that someone else is going through exactly the same thing and may just end up with the same alternative clue as you. Oh, it's happened. Whether or not you're playing with people you know can also have some bearing on the guessing, like any party game with clues. I recall one game where the prompt was drag, and a good half the table made references to RuPaul's Drag Race, which zoomed right past me as I don't watch much, if any, reality TV. I stumbled through, though, managing to cobble together an idea based on the table's variety of clues. Being able to think creatively and help your guesser without being too outside the box is a really fun and often funny challenge. And because you're trying to get that satisfaction of having your active player guess correctly, there's no stress of competition to worry about. You just want to do your best. I highly recommend bringing this to conventions as it'll be played back to back effortlessly. In fact, you might find it hard to limit yourself to just the seven players. I have on occasion broken the rules to add an eighth player, as the active player really needs to just hold a card while the rest of the table writes on their easels. And trust me, you'll have spectators. This game is intriguing and magnetic, and exudes fun into any room it's played in. Just One is probably my favorite party game of recent years. There's no pressure like really wordy word games, and no improv like some party games. Just great, pure, guessing fun. I'd say if you've enjoyed Codenames or games like Insider or Time's Up, Just One should certainly be on your radar. I'm Nicole, and thanks for listening. You can find me writing at the Daily Worker Placement blog and co-hosting the Great Way Games podcast. I don't always buy the new hotness games right away, but I got to try Wingspan at a local con two weeks ago, and I liked it so much I bought it on the spot. Designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and published by Stonemeyer Games in 2019, Wingspan is a card game about birds. You spend the game collecting birds and placing them in their habitat. There are three bird habitats, forest, grassland, and wetland, represented by rows on your player mat. The three rows also represent the core actions in Wingspan, draw bird cards, get food tokens, and lay eggs on bird cards. Each bird is worth points at the end of the game, but that's only part of their value. The more birds you have in a row, the more effective that core action will be. Plus, birds have abilities that come into play when you take a core action. Say you have three birds in the wetland row, and you take the wetland action, draw cards. 
First you draw the cards, then you go through the wetland birds one by one and activate each. Ideally, you try to chain bird abilities together. I played a game of Wingspan where I had a bird that let me take a free wheat token next to a bird that let me discard a wheat token to draw two cards from the deck and tuck them behind the bird. Every card tucked behind a bird is worth a victory point at the end of the game, so every time I took that action, I got two free victory points. Sometimes bird abilities are related to the behavior of the actual bird. Many predator birds, like owls, have a hunting ability, where you draw a card from the deck and look at the size of the bird on that card. If the bird you just drew is small enough, the owl eats it, and you get to tuck the card behind the owl. But if the bird is too big, it gets away and you have to discard it. This has led to some funny moments, like in one game when a barred owl tried to hunt and drew a California condor, which is almost three times its size. We all had to laugh at the idea of an owl trying to fly away with a condor in its claws. Not every bird has a power that gets activated when you take the core action. Some bird powers happen only once when played. Some are triggered when another player takes an action. And a few of the most valuable birds have no ability, just a lot of victory points. There are many different ways to get victory points in Wingspan. As I mentioned, there are points for each bird you play and points for cards tucked under your birds. Every egg you lay is worth a point, and every player starts the game with a bonus card that gives you a secret goal to work toward, like birds that have a color in their name or birds that eat cherries. The bonus cards can steer you towards a strategy, although of course you need to draw cards that work with your bonus. There are also victory point goals at the end of every round, like who has the most birds in the grassland or who has the most eggs laid in platform nests. One nice tension of Wingspan is that you start the game with eight action tokens per round, but at the end of every round, you use one of those tokens to mark your place on the end of round goal. That takes away one action in the next round. By the final round, you have only five actions. Now, by the end of the game, you've probably played birds with good abilities, so those five actions will do more than they would have early on. But still, this restriction gives a sense of urgency to the end of a game of Wingspan that I find lacking in a lot of engine-building games. That urgency is needed to counterbalance my only real criticism of Wingspan. By the end of the game, when you're just trying to get points, laying eggs is usually the best action you can take. I've played Wingspan seven times now, and one of the most effective strategies I've seen is to spend the first three rounds playing birds that have room for a lot of eggs, and then the entire final round is just taking the lay eggs action over and over. It's a point-generating machine, but kind of boring. I'd like to see some kind of balancing mechanism that makes the value of laying eggs a little less lopsided in the final round. The component quality in Wingspan is as good as you'd expect from Stonemeyer Games. There's gorgeous art by Ana Maria Martinez Jaramillo, Natalia Rojas, and Beth Sobel. Each bird card is illustrated with a unique bird, 170 in all, and a little factoid about the bird at the bottom of each card. There are chunky custom dice for the food, and a dice tower shaped like a bird feeder to roll them in. And maybe the best part, the eggs you lay look like tiny foil-wrapped chocolate eggs. I know I'm not the only person planning a wingspan party for when Easter candy shows up in stores. There isn't much player interaction in Wingspan, and what there is is typically positive. Abilities that trigger when someone else takes an action, or birds that give everyone a food token, not just you. You do have to pay attention to what other players are doing, but there is no take that in this lovely game about birds. The theme and components make Wingspan a joy to spend time with, but that's not why I love it. I love it because it's fun, a satisfying engine builder, and it comes with a really solid solo game. I've played solo twice now and haven't won yet, but next time for sure. 
and that's Wingspan. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not rolling for cherries in the bird feeder, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Reiner Knizia's Indigo. I've talked about path-building games before. Back in episode 34, I discussed my complicated relationship with Dirk Hinn's Metro. I bring them up as a genre pretty often when considering other tile lane games or root builders. You're probably most familiar with Suro, that's T-S-U-R-O, a very popular and borderline mass-market implementation of the place a tile on the board to continue a path mechanism. I've played a number of these games, uh, Aqua Romana, Streetcar, Metro, and some others, but Indigo is both my favorite and probably the best, in no small part because it's a Reiner Knizia game from Ravensburger. I assume that you, the board game podcast listener, are at least somewhat familiar with the good Dr. Knizia, but if the people you're in the car with are not, they only need to know that he is very, very famous and very, very good at designing board games. One of his strengths of the last decade has been the refining of other people's ideas. There's not much that feels wholly original or unique in Indigo, and for once that's a good thing. Instead of taking a basic mechanism and adding a bunch of stuff to it, Kinesia's power as a designer radiates from what he chooses to take away. In modern board game discourse, refinement and development get bandied around a lot by people who think they know what they're talking about. But these are often the same people waving the banners of bigger, longer, harder as indicators of a game's relative worth. That's of course not to say that many rules-heavy games aren't also highly developed, but a lot of people use refined or elegant as synonyms for I like it and it makes me feel smart for understanding how it works, totally irrespective of how much refinement or development or simplification went into a title. Taking things away and working from restriction is almost always harder to execute well than adding new things to a big box of minis or a 500-card deck builder. But it's hard to get people excited about a brilliant new game that uses a traditional deck of cards, isn't it? Most of my favorite games aren't particularly complex, and Indigo strikes a great balance of low cognitive load, challenge, variability, and fun. So, what's happening in Indigo? You are laying hex tiles to build routes from gems in the center of the board to gates at the edge of the board. As you lay tiles, the gems slide along the path you've made. You get to keep the gems you move out of your own gate, and the person with the most valuable gems at the end of the game is the winner. At two-player, which of course most of my plays have been, this is fairly straightforward. Each player alternates gates, and it's a tug-of-war with spaghetti to loop and unloop and redirect and block and steal from the other player. But at three and four, players share gates, and when a gem passes through a shared gate, both players are rewarded equally. So you can build alliances, shift loyalties, and try to keep mental track of who has what gems behind their screens. At two, I usually find Indigo very relaxing, even though Megan and I are still playing competitively. There's something satisfying about a board full of beautiful tiles that will never come out the same twice. The game ends when all the gems are gone, and usually most, if not all, of the tiles have been placed when that happens. The result is a lovely mosaic board, and it's nice to look at even if you've lost. Eckhart Freytag and Walter Pepperell, both longtime Robinsberger artists, illustrated Indigo in a vaguely Indian batik style, which certainly dips its toes into appropriation, but for a German game from 2012, it's surprisingly respectful in its use of theme. This is an abstract, no question. Although, the rulebook says, Indigo is a deep shade of blue obtained from the Indian indigo plant since ancient times. Its deep blue is a symbol of eternity and immortality. The color has a soothing effect and provides a clear head, which is exactly what players will need during the game as they search for the most precious gems. So, that's a mix of like a vaguely unpleasant orientalism with the light veneer of a theme that you'd expect from a family abstract. I don't love it, but it's not egregious or anything. Opinions on the box size in Indigo are split, and I understand why. If you don't own other thin, long-box Robinsberger games, you're probably going to be pissed. The box is a weird size and shape for the components, and if you don't store it horizontally, which I don't because I'm not a monster, all the stuff falls out of the insert. 
This would bother me a lot if Indigo wasn't one of about a dozen other games I own in this older box format. For me, it fits perfectly on the shelf with my other Ravensburger and Uberplay titles. The components are good quality, though if you wanted to upgrade the plastic gems to glass, any old copy of Pente would do that nicely for you. Because it's a Ravensburger title, everything is linen finished, though the tiles are typically thin. I personally don't think that's a problem in this game, but people have been known to pitch a real fit over this issue. See every discussion about Castles of Burgundy and its components, ever. Indigo is typically around $25 in the US, though it has gone on sale somewhat frequently in the past few years. I think we paid around $20 for it, and have gotten more than our money's worth out of it. So, who should buy Indigo? People who love tile lane games. People who love route building. People who want to explore network planning strategy in a simple and beautiful package. And people looking for a short, light, weeknight game to enjoy again and again. I give Indigo 8 out of 8 game mechanisms, made better because Reiner Kinesia published a version of them. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost, where I post about thrift stores, Star Trek, and weird bad games you've never heard of. There's a trajectory that happens to most veteran board gamers. They get into the hobby through a gateway game or two, play the heck out of them, and then move on to more challenging games, or games that are better suited to their new likes and desires, based upon diving headfirst into the hobby and learning about all the thousands and thousands of games out there. Sometimes gamers return to those gateway games, but more often than not, those games just sit on your shelf out of nostalgia. Unplayed, a reminder of how you first got into the hobby. Takenoko was one of those games I learned early on in the hobby, but unlike those other gateway games that sit on my shelf collecting dust, this is one game I would hands down always play on any given day. Published in 2011, Takenoko is a 2-4 player game from Antoine Bauza, published by Bombex and Matago. It is a family game that plays in about 45 minutes that's set in a bamboo garden in ancient Japan. But really, there's only one thing that you really need to know about this game. It has a ridiculously cute and adorable panda, one that is constantly munching on bamboo when he gets a little stressed out. The bamboo, which stacks on the board, is equally adorable in pink, green, and yellow. And there's a little frustrated gardener figurine who is endlessly trying to keep his bamboo garden growing. The components in this game are by far the best I've ever seen. The entire game is cheery and colorful, and even the rulebook is wonderfully drawn like a comic book. The backstory goes like this. The Japanese emperor has entrusted his court members, the players, with the difficult task of caring for a panda by setting up their bamboo garden. The player who grows the most bamboo, managing their land plots best, while feeding the delicate panda, will win the game. The game is objective-based, and the player with the most victory points at the end wins. The first round of the game skips determining the weather conditions, which is present on future rounds. I particularly like this as it eases players into the rhythm of the game. On a player's turn, they must take two different actions. Players can either draw three plots, pick one, and place it on the table, take an irrigation channel, move the gardener in a straight line in any direction and where he stops, grow bamboo if the plot is irrigated, move the panda in a straight line in any direction and where he stops, eat a piece of bamboo, or lastly draw an objective card, minding the hand limit of five cards in your hand. Bamboo can only grow on irrigated plots, so either the plot must be touching the special pond tile at the center of the table, or water must be connected from the pond tile using irrigation channels. This is very important for scoring objectives, which I'll explain later. Bamboo can only grow up to four pieces high on a plot. After everyone takes their first turn, determining the weather phase is done before each person's turn. To do this, before your actions, you roll the weather die. If a sun shows up, you can take three different actions. If rain shows up, 
Grow bamboo on any irrigated plot of your choice. The wind allows you to take two of the same exact actions if you'd like. The lightning bolt scares the panda, and he moves anywhere to eat a piece of bamboo. The cloud allows you to take an improvement chip from the reserve. And finally, the question mark allows a player to pick one of the five previously mentioned conditions. An improvement chip comes in three types, an enclosure, which protects that plot from being eaten by the panda, fertilizer, which increases the amount of bamboo that grows on it whenever bamboo grows, and the watershed, which immediately makes a plot irrigated. These chips can only be placed on plots that have not grown bamboo yet. The whole point of the game is to score objective cards, which players receive one of each type at the start of the game. There are three types of cards, plot, gardener, and panda objectives. If you grab a panda objective, you need to be able to eat the specific types of bamboo pieces to score it. To score a gardener objective, the exact color and number of bamboo must be growing on three to four plot sections, with or without a specific improvement chip, depending on the image depicted on the card. Lastly, to score a plot objective, the configuration of the plots on the board must exactly match what's on the card, and they must all be irrigated. Do not forget about this. This is what most new players forget when they try to score their objectives. Gameplay continues until one person reveals their 7th, 8th, or 9th completed objective card, depending on the player count. That person gets the Emperor card, which is worth 2 points, and everyone else has one last turn. The person with the most VPs wins the game. In the case of a tie, the player who scored the most points on panned objective cards wins the game. If there is a second tie, players share the victory. The game is excellent at all player counts, and is just so delightful to get on the table. It's one of my absolute favorite games, and you all know me as a heavy Euro gamer. There's even an expensive collector's edition version available, which comes in a very large wooden box and a ginormous panda, which I believe is worth every single penny. And that's Takenoko, and this is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or just follow all the links on 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.